Come on, y'all. Everybody say word. Nice. So 1 Kings uh, chapter 17 uh, is going to be our address. And I have prepared uh, as best I can a meal. Uh, but I'm reminded that within my own hands, it's five little loaves and two fish. Okay? And this isn't enough to feed everybody. If just less left in my hands. And so we're going to pray together and we're going to ask that the Lord will take this message, that he will bless it, break it, and then feed us and nourish us with sound biblical teaching. Y'all okay with that prayer? Okay. And are you all in a big hurry today? Because like, what else do we have to do, right? So we're going to study some scripture. Amen? Okay, so Lord, we come before you. We testify today that we need you. We need scripture. We need truth. So I'd ask first and foremost that you would open our minds and hearts to being teachable. Lord, that is a miracle. That is a work of your spirit that we would be teachable, that we would take this posture of a learner that you have said, Lord Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You will give us rest if we take your yoke of teaching upon us. And so, Lord, we take that posture to learn today. And then, Lord, we entrust this message to you in our hands, my hands. It is five little loaves and two fish. It is insufficient to meet our spiritual need. And so, Lord, together we pray that you would take this message, that just like those five loaves and two fish, you would raise it up, bless it, break it, and distribute it so we would all leave today spiritually satisfied by your word, not mine. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we are continuing our journey down the hall of faith, the great hall of faith that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're turning now to our next portrait. And we left off with David, the second king of Israel last week. And for this particular study, we're going to have to move rather rapidly through the history of Israel. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to just jump over a bunch of history because it's important that anytime we study the scriptures, we understand the context of the scriptures we're studying. So what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of history, and I'm going to give you a map. Don't feel left out at home, because this map is also included in your sermon study. How many of y'all got a sermon study this morning? Lift those sermon studies up. Now you'll notice on the back side, or the second sheet, is a map. Y'all see a map? Y'all know I love maps. So there's a map. But there is also a genealogy of the king's of Israel and Judah, and I'll explain. So David was the second king of Israel. Then came his son Solomon. Then after Solomon came his son Rehoboam. Now Rehoboam was foolish. He did not listen to the wisdom of his counselors, and he ushered in effectively what from then on would be a divided kingdom. Israel would no longer be united. Not in, in this particular uh, generation or in this, this section of God's history. And so I want to show you a map. So Israel at one point was united, and the greatest unification, the largest uh, blessing or the chunk of, of land was under King Solomon. Then Rehoboam and Jeroboam divided the nation. So you have the southern kingdom, that is Judah, and you have the northern kingdom, that is Israel. Now for our study, we are going to be looking at the northern kingdom and specifically the kings of the northern kingdom and really specifically a king. But just for fun, 
I want to give you kind of a rundown of Israel's, that is the northern kingdom's initial kings, so we get a general idea of what we're going to be looking at. So, we have Israel's kings. We have Jeroboam, bad. Nadab, bad. Baasha, bad. Ella, bad. Zimri, bad. Omri, extra bad. Ahab, the worst. So we're going to be looking at the reign of Ahab for a little understanding of King Ahab and his, his really twisted wife, Jezebel. We turn to Haley's handbook, and I quote, Ahab reigned 22 years, that is over the northern kingdom, wickedest of all the kings of Israel. Uh, he married Jezebel. Okay, so check out this lady. A Sidonian princess, an imperious, unscrupulous, vindictive, determined, devilish woman, a demon incarnate. Wow, what a catch, right? Uh, of devotee of Baal worship, she built a temple for Baal in Samaria that became like the capital city of the northern kingdom where the king's palace was, maintained 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, slew the prophets of the Lord, and abolished true worship in the land. In fact, Ahab and Jezebel ushered in one of the most spiritually sick times of apostasy in Israel's history, making Baal and Asherah worship the national religion. It was atrocious. And it ushered in Israel, like spiritually decaying, like a carcass left in the sun. The worship of Baal and Asherah was wicked. I want to present to you just a little bit of understanding of what Baal and Asherah worship entailed. And so I've kind of interwoven a couple of quotes to give us a better understanding of this, this atrocious religion. Baal was a pagan god of storms and fertility, worshipped throughout the ancient Middle East because of his association with powerful forces. Now, in Canaanite literature, Baal is often associated with the fertility goddess Asherah, whose sacred Asherah poles are mentioned numerous times uh, through the scriptures and the worship of these pagan deities. This is, how they, this is what the worship involved. Self-mutilation, ritual prostitution, and infant sacrifice. The Oriental Institute, that is a... a uh, uh, Oh, what do they call them? Then they dig up stuff from the past. What are they called? Archaeologists. Yeah, it's an archaeological institute excavating at Megiddo, which is near Samaria. Listen to this. Found in the stratum of Ahab's time the ruins of the temple Asherah. Just a few steps from the temple was a cemetery where many jars were found containing remains of infants who had been sacrificed in this temple. Prophets of Baal and Asherah were official for the little ones in the house. Parents, you can read that rest of that line. Despite these despicable practices, the Israelites themselves adopted Baal worship, a factor which eventually led to God's punishment. Wickedness and a turning away from the true God always precedes judgment, never blessing. A nation... A people or a person cannot expect the blessings of God while wholeheartedly turning away from him or walking away from him. So it is into this political and spiritual and social cesspool that our person of interest dramatically bursts upon the narrative. 
It's about 14 years into the reign of Ahab and Jezebel that we're introduced to the great prophet Elijah, considered to be one of the greatest prophets that Israel ever produced outside of Moses himself. And Elijah, in my opinion, is also one of the clearest case studies of a man who was radically used by God, who literally had all the clear markings of mental illness and disorder. And disorder, and we're going to look at that mostly next week, but I'll give you some insights into that as well. So we're first looking at 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Elijah bursts into the narrative. We read, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. That's all we get. We get no backstory on Elijah. We're told that he is a Tishbite from the, the, or the town of Tishbe in the region of Gilead. Now, the region of Gilead we know, but Tishbe is kind of an enigma. It was somewhere south of the Sea of Galilee and east of the Jordan River. We are provided zero information on Elijah's upbringing or his calling into ministry as a prophet. And we have no idea how it came to be that he would be in Samaria standing before King Ahab in his palace. But Elijah bursts onto the narrative like Moses who stood before Pharaoh to pronounce the plagues and the judgments that would befall Egypt. Elijah burst onto the scene to pronounce judgment and plague on the land of Israel. Just a cursory knowledge of the history of Israel makes this astounding. The people of Israel were God's chosen people, set apart for his good, perfect purposes. The blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey. They were abundant in wealth. And now we're reading of judgment coming upon the land. As God had promised, when you obey, when you walk in obedience and faithfulness, the storehouses of heaven will be poured out. But you turn away in disobedience, the sky itself will turn to iron. Elijah speaks to Ahab as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. God lives the eternal God before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The faucet of God's blessing was going to be turned off. And what's fascinating is Baal himself was considered the God of fertility, the God of rain, and the God of harvest. This judgment served a specific purpose. It was to turn the hearts of the people back to the true God away from the false and wicked worship of Baal and Asherah. There would be drought. Then would come famine. And if God were not to intercede, then would be death. All for the purpose of bringing people back to spiritual sanity. And so, like I said, Elijah bursts into the narrative, and just as quickly, he goes on like a three-plus-year uh, expedition. And it's really fun reading, by the way. If you have not had the opportunity to read 1 Kings chapter 17, I want to encourage you to read it. Parents, grandparents, read it with your kids. 
wonderful application to see God's provision, but I'm going to give you kind of a synopsis. So God sends Elijah to a river east of the Jordan where he was going to hang out. God was going to feed him by ravens morning and evening with bread and meat. I've often thought about this and thought to myself, can you imagine Elijah trying to share to another person how God provided? So I was sitting by this river, and uh, in the morning, a raven would fly in and would give me a piece of meat and some bread. And then in the evening, the same raven would swing by, sometimes with fruit, maybe some nuts, but also some bread and some meat. Sure they did, Elijah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then he hung out there until the river dried up. You know why the river dried up? Because there was a drought. And so God sent him then to a widow's house who was a Gentile believer in a foreign land, and God miraculously provided for them through this never-ending supply of oil and meal, provided for Elijah the widow and her son. And then when the son fell sick and died, Elijah raised him from the dead. There's chapter 17. All during that period, that three-and-a-half-year period, Ahab scoured Israel and scoured the surrounding regions looking for Elijah. And while he was scouring, uh, uh, Jezebel was murdering, taking all of the prophets of the Lord that she could round up and putting them to death. There was only a hundred that were remaining hidden in two caves by a faithful man by the name of Obadiah. So after this three-and-a-half-plus-year period, the Lord sends Elijah back to Ahab. 1 Kings 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Elijah is being sent back to Ahab, but, but there is so much that is left unsaid of verse 1. For Elijah is not just sent to turn the faucet back on, he is being sent to turn the hearts of the people back to God. We read of this confrontation between Elijah and Ahab in verse 17. So look in your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah... Listen to this. Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? You're the problem. You caused this. It is really awkward when spiritually sick people point the finger and blame somebody else for the consequences they're experiencing because of their own spiritual sickness. Elijah was not the problem. Verse 18, And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. It's your father's house because you have what? Abandoned the Lord. You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have wholeheartedly followed the Baals. This is boldness. Elijah stands before the king like Nathan the prophet. You're the problem, Ahab. You have caused this. You have walked away from the commandments of the Lord. The kings of Israel were to inscribe in their own hand a copy of the law. They were to read from it morning, noon, and night so that they could lead the people in righteousness. And this king forsaking the Lord led the people away from God. Family, anytime we are led away from the word of God, to embrace any other philosophy or ideology or spiritual perspective, we are abandoning effectively the commandments of God. 
When we walk away from the word of God, we are also walking away from his abundant mercy and his steadfast love and his abundant grace and blessing of provision. There are no true blessings when we abandon the commandments of God. And I'm going to tell you, family, that's on the national level and that's also on the personal level. And so Elijah stands before Ahab and, and calls for a showdown. And I just like totally get in my mind an old Western like, wah, 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 wah. high noon. So he challenges, uh, uh, proposes a showdown between Elijah and all the prophets of Baal. And really more importantly, between Yahweh and the false gods Baal and Asherah. Verse 19. Now therefore send and, and gather all Israel at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. What an indictment. Go round them up and let's meet at the mountain. In my opinion, this really is. It's one of the boldest pictures of radical faith. I mean, Elijah is effectively going to square off with a king, 850 prophets and a nation where he will stand alone. He is going to take a true stand for the Lord with one express purpose, to turn people's hearts back to God. Family, anytime we take a stand for the Lord, let it be only for the express purpose of turning people's hearts back to God. Let us not take a political stand attempting to turn people's hearts to a political platform. Let us not just take a social stand attempting to turn people's hearts to a social platform. We really don't have a whole lot of opinions on outside matters. Here's why. Because we preach Jesus and him crucified, buried, and risen. We proclaim the gospel of salvation, the true word of God. Christ is our platform. On Christ we stand, Christ we preach, and Christ we live in the hopes that just by a chance, somebody might see our testimony, hear our testimony, be near the glory of Christ in our life, and be turned back to the holy God. Amen? Okay. So the morning of the showdown happens. Mount Carmel showdown. It starts early, Elijah challenging the people to make a choice. And this is bold stuff, man. This is Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord type stuff. 1 Kings 18, verses 20 through 21. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There's excitement in the air. People are ready for a showdown. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long? How long are you going to go limping back and forth between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people didn't have a single response. We must choose whom we will serve. 
We will either serve the false gods of this fallen world, or we will worship the true God of heaven and earth. It is a spiritual sickness to straddle the spiritual fence. For we either plant both feet firmly on the narrow path of following Christ, or we plant both feet firmly on the highway that leads to hell. We can't stand in both. These people, they were spiritually handicapped. They were limping back, back and forth. They were on two crutches, one called Yahweh, the other one Baal and Asherah. And it's interesting that the people remained silent. What could they say? They knew Elijah was right. Verses 22 through 24, Elijah turns his attention from the people now to the prophets. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. We, in the narrative, we know he's not the only one. He's going to think he's the only one, but he ain't the only one. But he is the only prophet of the Lord on the mountain that day as he squared off with literally thousands. Listen to the boldness. Baal's prophets are 450 men. So here's the challenge. Let two bowls be given to us. Let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And so as I'm imagining it, there were going to be two altars. There was going to be one altar to Baal and Asherah, which there probably were already many on Mount Carmel because that was a place of their high worship. And then there was going to be an altar to the Lord. And they were going to take two bowls and put one on each one, and they were going to see who, whose God is the true God. And this is how they would know. You call upon the name of your God, verse 24, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And the people all answered, hey, that sounds great. It's well spoken. Let's do this thing. This is big, bold, and bodacious faith. So the prophets of Baal choose their bull. They slaughter it and lay it upon the altars, or the altar. And the prophets of Baal here, as we look at the narrative, they were literally provided every advantage. This showdown is on their home, dirt, home turf. As I've already said, Mount Carmel was like this place of high worship. In fact, many considered it literally the footstool of the, of the god Baal. They were numerically at an advantage. 450 to 1. They were given first pick and the opportunity to call on their God first. This literally should have been a cakewalk for Baal. I mean, think about it. He was considered the God of weather, the God of fertility, the God of lightning. I mean, for him to provide a little fire should have been absolutely nothing. But all they did that day, they danced and they, they chanted and they cut themselves, but there was nothing, no stirring of heaven, not a match stick of fire fell from the sky. I love Elijah's response as the prophets danced and cried out, verses 27 through 29. And at noon, Elijah mocked, saying, cry louder, for he is a God. Either he's musing, like he's just joking around, or, or he's relieving himself. Maybe your God's in the bathroom. 
or he's on some journey. Maybe he took a trip, or maybe he's taking a nap, and he's asleep and must be awakened, and it, it instigated them more, and they cried out more, and they cut themselves, as was their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. I mean, what kind of God? What kind of God would be stirred? And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, that is speaking of three o'clock in the afternoon when the Israelites were supposed to offer the true sacrifice to God. But listen to this, there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. I mean, it got to the point where the crowd, seeing the absolute false religion on display, the charlatans of these prophets— they began to just turn and walk away. And that is when Elijah began to approach what would effectively be a restoring of right worship. Israel was being ripped off by a fallen god, wicked and satanic devil worship. Family, it is the god of this age who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, to twist true faith to kill and take life. Anytime we are stirred towards walking away from the Lord, anytime we are twisted to turn against another human being, anytime we are elicited into a place of rage, we are being stirred by the God of this age. And it's a ministry that is still alive and well. And so Elijah then calls the people back to the Lord, and he took an old altar, one that had been broken down because Mount Carmel was also once a place of true God worship. And he takes 12 stones, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he begins to rebuild the altar. He lays wood upon the altar, and he digs a trench around the altar all the while the people look on. He takes a bowl and he slaughters it into quarters and places it up on this altar. And then he calls for four buckets of water. And he begins to pour the water over the top of the bowl as it washed down the wood and down over the stones and into the trough. Multiple times asking for more water with each bucket poured, the people peering in on the edge of their seat, arrested in silence. For if this altar was to be full of fire, it would have to be the fire of God. And it was at about three in the afternoon that Elijah prayed. There was no dancing or chanting, no cutting himself. Just a simple prayer of faith. Family, that's all it takes if it's truly of God. You don't have to dance around. You don't have to slay people in the spirit. You don't have to hit people in the tops of their heads. That is false worship. Elijah prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, O covenant God, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. What does that say of Elijah? He's faithful, obedient. 
he surrendered his will to the Lord's will. I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord. May they know you are God and have turned their hearts back. His heart's prayer. I would imagine as a prophet, he preached. He preached till he was blue in the face. He begged, he pleaded, turn back. Yet people's hearts were left unturned. I will tell you right now, the hardest substance on planet Earth is the human heart. When spiritual sclerosis sets in, it only takes or it can only happen through a miracle of God that that hard heart is broken down and turned back to the Lord. And Elijah prays, God, please turn our hearts back to you in true worship. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I mean, God literally consumed the sacrificial meal and cleaned up when he was done. There was nothing left. And even the dust that the stones rested upon had been swept away. Family, when we truly honor the Lord, when we honor him as individuals and we honor him as a people, the Lord will move in power. And look at what happened in verse 39, the miracle. We often get focused on the fire from heaven. That's not the biggest miracle. The miracle were that hearts that were hardened and were turned away from the Lord were then turned back to God in a picture of spiritual revival. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces as the Israelites fell on their faces when God delivered the law to Moses and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's beautiful. And in fact, what I didn't mention is Elijah, his name means the Lord is God. And so the people began chanting, Elijah! You'll notice they do not draw attention to the prophet, but to the Lord. And that's how you know when it's a true prophet. See, a true prophet always turns the attention of people to the Lord, that even his name was an act of worship. And we see this beautiful spiritual revival break out. And, And in revival, they begin to cleanse the land. Just as the Israelites would round up their idols and they would cast them out, there's this cleansing. Verse 40. And I've often thought, by the way, that if the Bible, like the whole of it was like made into a motion picture, like a major major motion picture, it's going to be rated R. So verse 40. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, I don't know if that's Elijah doing all the work, if he's the one with the sword and did all the damage, or, or maybe it was all the people. And I don't know if it was just the 450, but plus the 400 of Asherah, maybe somewhere between 450 and like 850, but that's a lot, right? So Elijah gets done with that, and then he walks back up the mountain where he gets to the very top and he turns to Ahab and he says, okay, Ahab, it's time for you to hop in your chariot and head home. Pour yourself a glass of wine, fire up the barbecue and throw a steak on because rain's about to fall. 
He gets to the top of the mountain and he begins to pray. Seven times he prays. Seven times his servant goes and looks at the horizon overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. And it was on the seventh time that he prayed that a cloud the size of a man's hand appeared. And that's when Elijah said, okay, you better head out, king. The storm's about to come. And then Elijah, in the power of the Lord, tucks his cloak and runs 13 miles, outrunning the chariot of Ahab to get to the city of Jezreel where he finally collapses in exhaustion. And that's where we'll pick up next week. A few thoughts and, and some, some things I want us to chew on. I really want us to chew on these. And, and this has been interesting because as I prepared this, this message, I, I kept coming back to, it's a character study. It's a character study. So we're supposed to just look at Elijah and his life and kind of develop this picture. And, and we spent a lot of time looking at Israel, and I'm like, Lord, is this, what, is this what I should be doing? And I was walking the hallways, just really chewing on it. And it was like, if I was to encounter Elijah like Peter, James, and John, and Jesus did at the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses showed up, like if I was to stand before Elijah, I believe what I'm about to share with you would be the message that Elijah would want me to preach that I believe that this is bringing him the greatest honor in the sense of his service of the Lord and really brings God the highest honor when we as a people are restored to right worship. So here are a few thoughts. First, the prophets of Baal end our culture. It's about to get personal. You see, it's easy, so easy, to look at passages like this and be like, we're nothing like that. We don't worship false gods. We're different. Y'all, we're just not that unique. And here's the reality. We have succumbed to the same sickness. We are right now as a nation in the great season of apostasy. It's not some time off in the future. It's right now for us as a nation. We have effectively abandoned the Lord. And, and here's how, how we can picture this. I have been fascinated by how little our cultural conversation has turned to the discussion of God. What we just witnessed in the scripture was a brief, and it is a brief, spiritual revival in the land of Israel. Brought about by this judgment. The people of the nation were awakened spiritually. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the response following 9-11. Y'all remember 9-11? For some of our younger folks, they're like, no. And during that time in 2001, I was coming to like my moral and ethical awakening in Christ. And when 9-11 happened, the nation seemed to like unify and like almost prayer and repentance of God. The churches began to swell. The conversation turned to God. And, it, and there was like this, these whispers like, maybe this is the next great awakening. It's happening. But then just as quickly, we all got back to our normal lives. Now fast forward 19 years. It has only been 19 years, and we are now faced with unprecedented circumstances. A pandemic 
We are literally on the verge of economic collapse. There are divisions and conflicts that are literally tearing our nation apart at the seams. And for all of the conversations and all of the reports and all of the talks and videos and blogs and memes and stories and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok or whatever rock you want to under, overturn or look under, there is not even a whisper of God. It's like as a country and a nation and a people, we have doubled down in our efforts to turn away from the Lord. We don't even talk about him anymore. And in stride, because it's easy to point the finger out there, but we need to look in here because the church has effectively wandered away from the true shepherd of our souls. How do we know that? Because we've turned away from sound biblical teaching and faithful preaching of the gospel to do what? Well, we have turned away to now embrace social reform that is rooted, literally rooted in humanistic secular thought. We worship entertainment and seek after teachers who will confirm for us what our itching ears want to hear. We seek comfort and not sacrifice health, but not holiness, happiness, but not humility, wealth, and not worship. Family, the church in North America is sick. We are surrounded by the prophets of Baal and Asherah, our national worship of wealth and self-indulgence and the American dream. We worship and bow down at the great bull and the temple called Wall Street. We hang high the great rainbow of pride flying atop our flagpoles, we bow down to the temple of child sacrifice called choice, and we turn away from the cries of the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, the marginalized, the hurting, and the oppressed. We are a polluted people. And we are surrounded by false prophets. Y'all, this is not just the preaching for Amen Corner. It's a wake-up call. We must rid the church and our homes and our hearts of wicked and demonic teachings of the prophets Baal and Asherah and purify our worship of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 24 through 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Family, it is time for us to return back to the true shepherd and overseer of our souls. Which means we need to stop limping between two opinions. For so long, the comfort and relative inoculation from the world's troubles have essentially created this like perfect environment where the true and pure doctrine of our faith can be mixed with false teachings and ideologies of this world. Like, we could have the best of both worlds. 
We could eat of the cornucopia of the blessings of this world, and oh, we get eternity too. We preach a cross with no cost. The worldly pleasures surrounding us and infiltrating, it is the prosperity gospel of health and wealth that God is our genie. He is at our beck and call, and he is designed and created a being And he is only there for our blessing and our prosperity. That is the false God of this age. I believe the Lord is leading the church back to a season of revival. Do you all know what revival means? It means to revive what is almost dead. And y'all, revival does not start in the culture. It always starts in the church. Revival means to have something that is almost dead revived to life to turn back. It's going to be spiritual revival. It has to start in the church that, O church, let us turn back to the Lord and declare the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Elijah, a name of worship. Let us declare as a people, as for me and my house, And let us declare as a people, as for us in this house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Mm -hmm. And then, from the heights down to the depths, we turn to to the picture of Elijah's humanity. We witnessed initially, and we're going to see this more fully, Elijah moving from this manic mountain. And I want to just lay out for you this one day of Elijah's life. And one day he climbed a mountain early in the morning, calling a nation back to God. He squirted off of the prophets of Baal for literally hours, built an altar, slaughtered a bull, called down fire from heaven, seized and slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal, maybe add on there another 400 of Asherah. He climbed back up the mountain, fervently prayed for rain. When it began, he, began, he tucked his cloak into his, into his uh, belt, and he ran a half marathon, outrunning a chariot where he collapses in exhaustion in the city of Jezreel. Y'all think your days are busy. And it is there, in exhaustion, where we witness him falling into fear and despair and a pit of depression that will last 40 days. And it's like those times where we go from being up on the mountain to being in the depth of the pit of depression. And you want to know the encouragement? That in that pit, the Lord met with Elijah. The Lord restored Elijah. And the Lord continued to use Elijah until he took him up in a fiery chariot. And y'all, we may not have that Chevrolet taking us to heaven, but I will say this, when we breathe our last, we will, absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. We will be carried to him in perfection of his holiness. But while we are here, there is going to be frailty. And we are going to see how God works even in our frailty. And that will be our study next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, as we prayed at the beginning, if it is just my word, 
it is to no avail. But Lord, if it is your word in your hands, it is blessed and broken and it nourishes. May it lead us to a place of repentance. We pray for our nation. We're reminded that the nations are like drops of water and a bucket there like dust. You stir the hearts of kings and kingdoms. You bring about your perfect will. We ask that you would first turn our hearts back to you wholeheartedly, that both feet would be planted on the narrow path of righteousness following you, Jesus. That we would not only model, but we would embrace and live out a faithful and righteous life forsaking the Baal worship around us, the false prophets of this age. Restore in us a clean heart, O God. May there be a revival in your church that would then spill out into the nations. May the altars of worship, the dilapidated churches, pour down, leaving literally towns and cities without the true gospel, without true teaching. May they be rebuilt. May you raise up those who would bring your word to every city, every town, every corner of this nation. We pray that the gospel would be proclaimed, that you would turn a hardened heart of our nation back to you, O oh God. That true worship would be restored. That we, as a people, would fall before you declaring, the Lord, you are God. The Lord, you are God. And may it begin here in this place. Stir our hearts. Move our feet. Here we are, Lord. Use us. We pray this in your holy, eternal, and perfect name, Lord Jesus.